Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hello, this is Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. Did you ever wish you could get a glimpse of what Christmas was like in the Gilded Age? Well, now you can. Join me and Bowery Boys Walks on December 9th for a special VIP one-day bus trip from Manhattan to Lindhurst Mansion in Terrytown, New York. Gilded Age financier Jay Gould's country home. For more information and tickets, please visit BoweryBoysWalks.com. I hope to see you on December 9th. Welcome to the Gilded Gentleman Christmas Special for 2023. It's really hard to believe that a whole year has gone by since my last Christmas show, and we have covered so many people and places over the past year. Well, needless to say, like so many of you, I just love thinking about a 19th century Christmas. And in this show, we delve into what Christmas was really like in parts of Victorian America and even into the early years of the 20th century. Queen Victoria's reign was long and very influential, of course, in America as well as Britain, and it ended with her death in 1901, at which point her son became King Edward VII and reigned until 1910. Many historians like to say that more change occurred on all levels, social, cultural, and political during the 19th century than ever before in history. And well, you could say that's certainly true of how Christmas holiday celebrations evolved too, from the very early Dutch-inspired traditions of New Amsterdam here in New York to the years of the Gilded Age, with some very extravagant mansions as the setting, and some very extravagant gifts. Well, for some anyway. In this show, we will look at two families, the Treadwell family who prospered in their New York City townhouse in the middle of the 19th century, and then we'll see the Mills family who, during the Gilded Age, for at least a few Christmases that we know about, celebrated the holiday in their grand mansion in the Hudson Valley. We'll talk to a curator and a historian about these families, these mansions, and just how each of them, in very different ways and at very different times, celebrated what is for so many of us our very favorite holiday. (laughs) 
Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every other week we delve into world's light and dark in America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. I am so pleased to bring you the stories of these two Victorian Christmases, one in a city house and one in a country house. And the very best news of all is that you can visit both historic houses today and see them for yourself. The Merchant's House Museum was built in 1832 and was home to the wealthy merchant family, the Treadwells, for most of the 19th century and into the 20th century, until the last surviving daughter died in the house in 1933. Three years later, the house opened to the public as the Merchant's House Museum, showing how life was lived by one particular family in mid-century New York. The family and the house that we will visit in the second half of the show is the Mills Mansion in Statsburg, New York, a little less than a two-hour drive north of New York City. The Mills family blended 17th-century old New York roots and status with the wealth and social standing of the glittering Gilded Age. And we'll see just who came to visit for the holidays and how that family and their guests occupied their time on the snowy fields and frozen lakes during their Christmas celebrations. But we're going to begin in New York City in the 1850s. And to help us do that, I am so honored to welcome Anne Haddad, house historian of the Merchant's House Museum, back to the show. Anne joined me for a truly special episode back in the summer of 2022, a forgotten real-life gilded gentleman, the life of Effingham Nichols, episode 26, which I encourage you to enjoy if you haven't discovered it yet. Anne is a good friend and colleague and has been for the past several years the house historian of the Merchant's House Museum. Anne holds a Master of Library Science degree and has worked as curator of special collections at the New York Academy of Medicine Library. She has long been an advocate of preservation of old books and houses and is never happier than when she is reading 19th century diaries. Annie is joining me today for a nice cup of tea and a talk about Christmas. Annie, welcome back to The Gilded Gentleman. I am so happy you're back here at the table with me. Thank you so much, Carl. I am delighted to be here and to talk about my favorite holiday. Oh, we have a lot to talk about, Oh, yes, right? we do. So, Annie, since this show is about two houses and two families and how they celebrated Christmas at two different times in the 19th century, let's just begin with the first family here. And the one that we're going to visit first for Christmas was the Treadwell family. So can you give us an idea of just who the Treadwell family was and what they represented in the social history of New York? The Treadwells were a wealthy merchant-class family who lived in the elite Bond Street neighborhood, beginning in 1835, which is the year that Seabury Treadwell, the family patriarch, retired from his extremely successful hardware business that he had had on Pearl Street for about 35 years. He and his family, like their neighbors in the Bond Street area, were considered the creme de la creme, Carl. 
of New York society in the mid-19th century. And just to locate for listeners the Bond Street area, so we're talking about a little bit east of Washington Square and south of Union Square, right? So yes. south of 14th Street, Correct. right? The Bond Street, if we want to put a perimeter around the elite Bond Street area, it would go from approximately Astor Place, then known as Art Street, to Bleecker Street, north-south, and then east, the Bowery, and west, Broadway. So it was a very small, exclusive neighborhood. Now, to understand Christmas in this world of old New York that the Treadwells uh, would have known, we really need to begin, and this may surprise some listeners, with another holiday that was more important at the time, and that was New Year's Day. So, Annie, can you talk about in this world of mid and really early 19th century New York, what the importance of New Year's Day was and why? Well, it may surprise some people, some listeners, to learn that New Year's Day originally began with the Dutch in New Amsterdam as a day of social atonement where social sinners as it were, who had neglected family ties and friendships, could find redemption by visiting the households within one's elite circle and renew and strengthen the old bonds that had connected them. So the ladies remained at home, overseeing a vast buffet for the visitors. The gentlemen put on their best waistcoats and went out and ventured to the homes of the esteemed women that they knew. And they paid their respects and offered good wishes for the new year. And this was a favorite holiday for New York's elite. And that typically they would exchange, the families would exchange gifts on New Year's Day. And the gentlemen would go about calling on friends sipping brandy and having parts of this wonderful buffet that the ladies would set out. I think it's such a funny concept as a day of social atonement. It really turned into a really big party, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But this was a much bigger holiday than Christmas, right, at this time. And that's yes. what I think is really fascinating is Christmas was observed, but New Year's Day was when the big socializing really occurred. Am I right about that? Absolutely. Until the end of the 19th century. Now, the Treadwell's home at 29 East 4th Street. So the home was built in 1832 and Seabury, the patriarch, and his family, they moved in in 1835. And we know that instead of moving uptown, which so many of the wealthy families were doing around this period, or at least around mid-century, the family stayed here and they redecorated the house in the 1850s. So that's really the moment where we we dive into to history here. You and I were talking last week, and I was so fascinated by this because you were sharing with me that some of the celebrations of Christmas around this time were actually deeply influenced by one man that I did not know well, and that many listeners, um, this may be a surprise for you too, but someone that really had a lot of influence on 19th century Christmas at this time. Would you share that um, with listeners? Because I was fascinated. Absolutely. This is my moment to give a shout out to a man that I doubt very many, even New Yorkers, have heard of, and his name was John Pintard. 
Am I right? No one's ever heard of John Pinter? Well, I didn't until you (laughs) shared it with me. So to talk about John, we just have to take a little bit of a look back at what Christmas was really like prior to John's influence. Christmas in the 17th century was really a very raucous, drunken celebration that was very public, that was very much out in the streets. And this was due to the European custom of the excessive consumption of food and alcohol that was so prominent during this time. So If you have crowds going around, drinking, damaging property, roaming the streets, and threatening and frightening the upper classes as your representation of Christmas, that's going to make some people say, hmm, something has to change. And here comes John Pinterd, who was born in 1759. He was a successful merchant and entrepreneur who actually knew Everyone. He knew everyone from George Washington to Washington Irving. And he supposedly is the one who encouraged President Washington to embrace the New Year's Day calling tradition. So Pinterd was lamenting the fact that the celebration of Christmas in the growing city of New York was so bluntly out of control. He wanted to create a holiday that was much more civilized and family-centered. So Pinterd, who probably, if he is known, is known mostly for founding the New York Historical Society, he had begun honoring St. Nicholas as the patron saint of New York on the feast day of December 6th as a way of highlighting New York City's rich Dutch heritage. Meanwhile, Pintard's good friend, Washington Irving, had published his Knickerbocker's History of New York in 1809, in which he identified jolly old Dutchman nicknamed Santa Claus who parked his wagon on rooftops and slid down chimneys with gifts. So, In 1810, using Irving's description of St. Nicholas or Santa Claus, Pinterd proposed December 6th as a family-oriented winter holiday for polite society. In Washington Irving's sketchbook, published in 1819, Irving now depicted Christmas as a cozy domestic ritual. So all that was left was for those two concepts to be united, if you will. The idea of Santa Claus that Pinterd had pushed and the festivities of Christmas that Irving had created. And it was Clement Clark Moore who brought those two ideas together in his poem of 1822, A Visit from St. Nicholas. But I say that Pinterd is so important because without him, I don't think the notion of Santa Claus and that figure would have emerged as an important Christmas aspect. 
Well, gosh, I think there's a lot of thanks to be given here, not only to John Pinterest, but also Clement Clark Moore and a lot of the Washington Irving, a lot of these influences in early 19th century New York. They're really combined to give us the holiday that they we, are. You know, yeah, they are the trifecta of Christmas in my mind. Now, when the merchant's house is so beautifully decorated for Christmas as it is now, so I encourage listeners, if you are in New York or visiting New York, to to visit the house, there is a Christmas tree to be sure, but it's a really very small tree, and I am always curious about the shovel and the bucket that are positioned near the tree. So, Annie, can you talk a little bit about this notion of of Christmas trees, how they came to be, at least here in New York and in America, and what's the story of that bucket and shovel? Well, I hope that you all have an opportunity to see the merchant's house when it is decorated at Christmas because the beautiful neoclassical parlors, double parlors, are decorated with evergreens, holly, ivy, berries, and the Christmas tree. Now, the Christmas tree reached New York in the mid-1830s, courtesy of the German immigrants. Now, we usually give credit to the popularity of the tree in America to Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. And that is because Godey's Ladies Book in December of 1850 included an illustration of their tree. But I think it's important to know that the American author, Catherine Maria Sedgwick, actually introduced the idea earlier in 1836 when she wrote a short story entitled New Year's Day. And that piece of American fiction has the distinction of including a Christmas tree for the first time in American literature. Now tell me about that bucket and shovel. I still want to know why that's there. The Christmas trees were decorated with handmade ornaments, strings of berries, colored paper chains, ribbons, and real lit candles. That is why a family always kept a bucket of water with a sponge tied to the end of a stick nearby the tree in the event of fires. Now, it seems that by mid-century, America was was truly being influenced by some traditions from Britain. You, you mentioned the influences of Queen Victoria, of course. But can you talk about, is that correct overall? And can you talk a little bit about any of the British traditions that were coming over and becoming integrated into what America was doing to celebrate the holiday? Well, in addition to Prince Albert's contribution, Charles Dickens, of course, had an enormous influence on the observance of Christmas with his 1843 A Christmas Carol. And again, Dickens is promoting Christmas in that novel as a family-centered private celebration, typically presided over by the Victorian mother, who was called the angel of the house. And again, this goes back to Washington Irving, because he was the one who was promoting much earlier, who had promoted the very private, family-centered, home-centered aspect of Christmas. Mike Wallace, the historian who co-wrote Gotham, said, you might say Irving and Dickens were sipping the same punch. And we're going to come back to punch a little bit later in our talk. But for the moment... 
Annie and I are going to take a short break and we'll be back. I could say we'd refill our teacups here, but Annie, what do you think? Should we switch over to eggnog? Oh, yes. I think that would be great. With some brandy. (laughs) So Annie and I will be right back. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and it's Christmas here at the Gilded Gentleman. And I'm joined by Annie Haddad, the house historian of the Merchant's House Museum, and we are talking about Christmas in mid-19th century New York. So, Annie, who does not love presents at Christmas time? And first of all, since we're talking about a city house here, I'm kind of curious where the Treadwells would have shopped for Christmas presents at this point in mid-19th century New York. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, as we do today, the Treadwells would have spent the weeks before Christmas shopping for gifts for their friends and their loved ones. By the way, Gifts were given on both Christmas and New Year's Day until late in the century. So in addition to Stewart's Marble Palace department store, then located on Broadway and Chambers Street, and Lord and Taylor, of course, on Catherine Street, and there was many, many smaller shops that offered many different kinds of goods for consumers. Now, We know that books were often treasured gifts to many 19th century families. They were rare and they were expensive and often had beautiful handmade, hand-tooled bindings. Now, one of the things that I think is fascinating about the collection of the Merchant's House is that we actually have, and you have, have beautifully curated them, quite a collection of the Treadwell's own books. And it seems like they may have given books as gifts at the holidays. What do we know about that? Gift books became very popular in the mid-19th century. They were also called annuals, and they were extremely popular, especially as Christmas gifts. A gift annual was an illustrated anthology of stories, very sentimental, usually having a moral lesson, They often contained beautiful steel engravings and use of the brand new color lithography, which had become very popular. They often had a decorative, beautiful leather binding or a paper binding to appeal to Christmas shoppers. And in the museum's collection, we have one gift that we can definitely say was given at Christmas— 
1850, Seabury and Eliza's fifth child, Phoebe, received the brilliant a gift book for 1850 from her oldest sister, Elizabeth. The book contains many, many lovely engravings and a richly embossed cover. And it's inscribed P.E. Treadwell from her sister, E., December 25th, 1850. And in 1852, also in our collection is a book that Seabury received for Christmas, The Life and Memorials of Daniel Webster. Wow, a little light reading for the Christmas <laughs> holidays, right? But I love getting a book more than anything else, but I think it's fascinating to see that books would have been such treasured objects because they were they were rare enough. And certainly, and you spoke like a rare book curator, which you are, you described how beautiful they were. And really works of art, right? Yes, indeed. Now, the museum actually has a few items in its collection that I just love because it seems that they were handmade and possibly given as gifts. Can you talk about a few of those? And you know there's one that I love more than anything else that we have to talk about. Talk about those, Annie. Oh, we have some lovely handmade items in the collection that were given as, most likely given as Christmas gifts. We have handmade pin cushions, pillows, handkerchiefs, aprons. And for children, we have some toys, including handmade stuffed animals, especially beautiful, are a dog and a pig, which are I, so charming. I love that little stuffed pig. I think it is so sweet because it reminds me of the Velveteen Rabbit because oh, it's yes. had any any sense of the fabric is worn off and oh. it's just been loved by Treadwell children. And when you see these items, it's interesting because clearly the Treadwells shopped on Broadway wherever they went and they bought some items, but they also, as did many families, made Christmas gifts. And the fact that we can see these today. So again, listeners, I invite you to come and see the collection and do look for that little, wonderful, loved stuffed pig. And the four servants, who we don't forget at Christmas, may have received dresses and other dry goods from the Treadwells bought at Hitchcock and Leadbeater on Broadway, which offered many affordable presents for servants. Well, Annie, I don't know about you, but I feel ready for a Christmas celebration right now after our chat. You've certainly put me, and I know my listeners, in a holiday mood. But I do want to go back to something that you mentioned very, very early on in our chat. And it was a tradition from the 19th century, from Britain, really, that, that really existed in New York. And that was punch, the idea of serving punch, which we really don't think too much about today. Can you talk about that, why it was important and where it came from? Well, I would bet almost certainly that the Treadwell's Christmas celebration included a big festive punch bowl. Punch was a social drink. It was made in large quantities. It was meant to be shared, and it was a way of promoting the Christmas spirit of goodwill towards others and benevolence. One of the diarists that I have read extensively, Robert Graham, who was a typical young New York City gentleman, he wrote in 1848, At Christmas night, we had some real old-fashioned whiskey punch to keep up the good spirit. Punch was always alcoholic, warm, and it usually included some combination of wine, Madeira, rum, or brandy, some citrus— 
boiling water and heavily spiced. And it usually involved a dramatic lighting uh, when it was time to serve it, and it would burn for a few minutes. And you, there is an actual recipe of Charles Dickens that you can easily find on the internet from 1847 for his Christmas punch that was made with brandy, sugar, and lemons. So we can make our own version of Charles Dickens' Christmas punch this very season, right? Are you going to make some at your oh, house? absolutely. <laughs> Oh, Annie, you've given us so many wonderful (laughs) details about a mid-19th century um, New York Victorian Christmas. Thank you so much for joining me for this holiday edition of The Gilded Gentleman. I'm so happy that you're here, and I wish you and your family have a really wonderful part of the holiday season. Thank you, Carl, and I'm so happy to be here. And I would just like to add that if any listeners want to take a deeper dive into the origins of 19th century Christmas traditions, I heartily recommend a wonderful book called The Battle for Christmas, written by Stephen Nissenbaum, published in 1996. Well, there's a book that may end up under the Christmas trees of some of our listeners. Annie, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm going to top up your eggnog before we leave. Thank you so much. Thank you. And happy holidays and Merry thank Christmas. Thank you. My pleasure. Merry Christmas, everyone. And with that, I'm going to take a short break, but I'll be back for our trip out to the country and to the years of the Gilded Age for a very different family, a very different mansion, but everything one could want for a country Christmas. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. And to continue our story of Christmas traditions in 19th century Victorian America, we are going to travel out to the country. We are going north of New York City to the beautiful Hudson Valley, which became yet another enclave for the Gilded Age elite at the end of the 19th century. As we did with the Merchant's House, our city house, we'll be taking a look at a family, the Mills family, as you will soon hear, played a significant role in society, but also in America's financial world as well. And while the story of the Treadwell family was centered around the middle of the 19th century, this story will focus in the late 1890s and into the new century. 
Located in Statsburg, New York, the grand columned mansion set among rolling fields that was the Mills family's country home remains today and can be visited. And I encourage listeners to pay a visit for real for a real and rare look inside the Gilded Age. Joining me today for a look at the mansion, the family, and just how they likely celebrated a country Christmas is the curator, Maria Reynolds. Maria Reynolds is indeed the curator of the Mills Mansion's Statsburg State Historic Site in Statsburg, New York, where she has worked since 2011. Maria holds a Ph.D. and a master's degree in history from Loyola University in Chicago. While at Statsburg, she developed specialty tours based on Downton Abbey and HBO's The Gilded Age. Her considerable primary research on Statsburg servants was turned into an exhibit entitled In Service of Perfection, Statsburg's Elite Servants. Despite having the same name as Alexander Hamilton's mistress, Maria's work and research is most frequently based in the Gilded Age. Gosh, Maria, thank you so much for joining me today on The Gilded Gentleman. I am so happy that you're here. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, be able to talk to you about Statsburg and the Gilded Age. We have a lot to talk about, right? For sure. Yes. <laughs> now, thank you again so much for being here. Now, I had the complete pleasure to come up to Statsburg just a few weeks ago and to see the mansion all firsthand. It really is an extraordinary place, and it really does take one right back into the Gilded Age. So there's so much to talk about, so let's just start at the beginning. So I'd like to start with a look at Statsburg, the mansion, and the Mills family, just to put all of this into context for listeners. So the mansion is in the incredibly beautiful Hudson Valley, north of New York City, as I said in my introduction. Now, Maria, during the Gilded Age, this really was another enclave for the Gilded Age elite, right? So the Hudson Valley was very popular for wealthy families to have a country home. It wasn't too far from the city, New York City, and it was really easily accessible by railroad. Statsburg doesn't have a railroad stop today, but it certainly did during the Gilded Age. There were several estates in Statsburg, as well as neighboring Rhinebeck, Hyde Park, the Astor country home, Ferncliff, was in Rhinebeck. And then Frederick Vanderbilt, son of William Henry Vanderbilt, had a country home in Hyde Park. So the mills were part of a larger community that was in the Hudson Valley. So it sounds like this beautiful area, and it really is, was just as exclusive and just as desirable as even Saratoga or Newport, which may be well-known to some listeners. Do you think that's a fair statement? Well, it's interesting because a lot of the folks that had country homes in the Hudson Valley also would have had a home in Newport. So it was it was similar, but maybe a little smaller than Newport. And it was used in a different season. Well, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the Mills, uh, Ruth Livingston Mills and her husband Ogden Mills. They were very well known in Gilded Age society, and perhaps for some listeners, they may not be familiar with them. Could you put them in context a little bit? Who, who were they? So in Gilded Age society, we're seeing a clash between new money and old money. And what's interesting about Ruth and Ogden is that Ruth is old money. She's a Livingston. Her great-grandfather, Francis Lewis, signed the Declaration of Independence. She has this long heritage 
And then she marries Ogden Mills, who is new money. And it was very thrilling to us at the site that this fact was mentioned on HBO's The Gilded Age, because as you said, many people are not familiar with the Mills family for many reasons. But the fact that they made it to the show was a exciting moment for us. So Ruth and Ogden get married in 1882. And so they're bringing these these two worlds together. Now, Ogden Mills, his father, Darius Mills, was the person in his family who made millions. Ogden Mills himself was kind of a second generation millionaire. Well, what I think is so fascinating about them is exactly as you said, they are such an example of the blending of old money and new money. And that actually is exactly what Caroline Astor tried to do. She wanted to take the best of the old and the best of the new and somehow blend it together and and create something new. And here you have a couple that did exactly that, right? Yes. And Statsburg, the house is exactly that blend because you have this house that is Ruth's ancestral home, a house that was built by her great grandfather. And now she's able to transform it with all of that new money from her husband that was earned from industry. So the Millses actually had five homes that they split their time between. They had a home in New York City, the corner of 69th and 5th Avenue. They were generally there in the wintertime during ball season. Mrs. Mills always held a ball in January, and their New York house was their only house that had an actual ballroom. Every summer, they would travel to their Newport cottage called Ocean View. They also owned a home in California, Millbrae, that they had inherited from Ogden's father, Darius. And then finally, they had Statsburg, which I think was very special to them, especially Ruth, because it was her ancestral home. And that's where they usually would spend the fall. But not only would they spend the fall months at Statsburg, they would often go up there to spend a weekend. So we know they spent some Easter's here, or they would sometimes be here on a weekend in the winter month. And then Some years they would stay at Statsburg all the way through Christmas. Not every year, but we we know there are several that they did spend Christmas here at Statsburg. Now, as I mentioned, I was recently up in Statsburg to see the mansion and, and to see it all in person for a tour. And it's just extraordinary that so many of the Mills family original furnishings and their belongings are still there and and intact. You can really see the house as they saw it. And I think that's always so incredibly exciting when actual furnishings and belongings come back to a home, as was the the case here. And there was one particular artifact that gives us some real insight into the Mills family Christmases in particular. And, and this information comes from some writing that you did, Maria, which I was so fascinated to read. Back in 2017, the mansion received really an extraordinary gift that helped construct a picture of a couple of Christmases that the Mills did indeed spend here in Statsburg. They'd be the Christmas of 1899 and 1900. So can you talk a little about that? What did you get and what did it tell you about the Mills family? So we received a gift of a guest book that was used here from 1899 to 1908. And it was really astonishing because it came out of nowhere. We were contacted by someone who was cleaning out her parents' house. She had come across this book Uh, had no idea what or where Statsburg was, did a quick search, sent us an image of a page and said, oh, is this this you guys? And we looked at it and immediately could tell from the names that, yeah, this book was here. 
She had no known connection to the site, but thankfully contacted us before just tossing it. You know, it's one thing to read a list in the newspaper of who attended a party, but it's another thing to actually see the pages and the signatures. So it was an entirely thrilling thing to receive. And it makes me wonder or be hopeful that maybe there's more things out there that may find us someday. It brings up such an interesting point that entertaining visitors was certainly such an important part of, of the house at any season, but particularly during the holiday season as holiday guests were welcomed into the house, particularly in these seasons of 1899-1900. Can you share a little bit about who some of these guests were that the Mills had to visit? Yeah, there, there were several noteworthy names that appeared throughout the guest book including the Duke of Manchester, the future Duchess of Roxburgh, Ava Astor, Alice Roosevelt, and several Vanderbilt, including Frederick and Louise, their Hyde Park neighbors, Cornelius Vanderbilt III, and also William K. Vanderbilt. Now, the Christmas entries that we found in the guest book were from 1899 and 1900, So we were thrilled to see that they spent time here at Christmas. And it was interesting because the people that were here at Christmas were all close family and some some friends as well. So in 1899, we see that it's the Mills family that's here at Christmas. So Ogden's father, his sister, his sister's husband, Ogden's sister married a man named Whitelaw Reed. He was the owner of the New York Tribune. And also at various times, he was the ambassador to France and then the United Kingdom. So it was the the Mills family that was here at Christmas. And then the following Christmas, they're here again. And then more extended family is here from the Mills side. So it's these uh, Mills family members that are coming here at Christmas. So it's very small gathering. There's a few friends who are both unmarried and childless. So I think Christmas was really more of a, a family time. And then we see both years, a party of about 10 to 15 people arriving on New Year's Eve. So they seem to have a larger gathering at New Year's. Now, one of the things that I think is so important, a point that I really want to make about these mansions and these estates, is that these were really working farms. Now, although, again, we don't know a lot about how they celebrated the holiday? Did they have a local turkey? We can assume they probably did. But a lot of what was served on the holiday tables actually came from local meat and produce, and a great deal of it was was raised on the estate. And that was true here for the Mills family. Is that correct? Yes. The Mills family here at Statsburg had an extensive farming operation. There was a dairy complex, a creamery, poultry house. They had Jersey cows, sheep, chickens, so they would use that for meals here at Statsburg. There was also a very large greenhouse complex. So they grew all the flowers that they would use in the house, both here at Statsburg and in New York. Well, that is fascinating to me because there was this huge fascination with horticulture in 19th century Britain and America. And it was really a sign of status if you could have flowers that were out of season, if you could have fruits and vegetables that were out of season, because now you could grow them. 
in uh, in these great greenhouses. And do please share the story that you shared with me, because it seems like there was one particular thing that was very popular in the Mills family tables that was completely out of season. Hangjin was much more into his greenhouses than he was entertaining inside, so I think you could usually find him there. And several newspapers mention how much pride Ogden took in his cantaloupe. So he would grow cantaloupes in the winter, and the first crop was always ready by Christmas time. So it was a staple of Christmas at Stathburg. We don't have any of the menus of what they may have served at Christmas, but we know that everyone had cantaloupe. Well, I love that story because that was a very important thing. You know, a cantaloupe, you, the minute it gets near frost, it dies. So the idea that you were serving it in the middle of the wintertime was a very important statement. And I just love the fact that he served cantaloupe in the wintertime because anytime cantaloupes get near frost, they, they can't survive. So this was an important statement that you had the ability to serve this kind of thing. Another famous one, certainly in, in Britain, was always pineapple. If you could serve pineapple, that was something that, again, really only grew in tropical areas. So I think we would have loved those cantaloupes on the mills table, don't you think? Yes, and we still have some that we set out at Christmas time. Oh, I love Although it. Although they're not real. <laughs> but it communicates the same message. Well, it's fascinating because I, I recorded a show on, on Jay Gould in his mansion at Lyndhurst, and he had an enormous greenhouse complex there. So this is another example of what was going on in the Gilded Age that I think is important to talk about today. Now, I'm really excited to talk about this next section because the countryside around the mansion would have been such a wonderful thing for winter activities if you were entertaining, whether it was just your family for Christmas or other guests as well. So, Maria, what kind of things can we assume that they actually did outside? We actually have several things still in our collection that relate to winter activities. The Millses had a huge sled. There's a great hill outside of Statsburg. The community still loves and comes sledding on this hill today. We have a horse-drawn sleigh and an ice boat. Ice boating was very popular at the time because during the Gilded Age, the Hudson River would freeze. And so an ice boat's very similar to a sailboat, except you're gliding over the water. It could hit up to 60 miles per hour. And then the other thing that the mills would do gliding on the, the river would be ice skating, which is my personal favorite sport. Oh, we're going to talk about that. I think the skating is so... Interesting, because this was a very social activity, but also this could be kind of a romantic thing too, right? To go skating with someone that you liked? Yeah, once Central Park opened, the skating pond was one of the most popular places. You were able to have a little more freedom on skates, and you could skate with, ladies could skate with a gentleman. It's pretty cold, you can lean in, be supported. So this was a very popular activity for, for young men and women. For courting couples, shall we call them, right? Yes, yes. Now, mm -hmm. if I'm correct, you had shared with me at one point that Ruth Mills was actually quite a good skater. Is that true? Yeah, I was astonished when I found this. I found a newspaper article that talked about Ruth Mills. And we've always had this impression of Ruth being very regal. And I wouldn't expect her to do something or to do a sport in public where she could fall. I could never imagine Ruth Mills, social hostess, queen of society, going out 
and falling, which happens when you skate, no matter how good you are. But I found this newspaper article that, and, and I'll quote it, it says, Mrs. Ogden Mills is quite too graceful and proficient, as if by common assent, the others stop a moment to watch her do the double Philadelphia grapevine about the most difficult gyration on ice known to the expert. And this is just one of many articles talking about what an excellent skater she was. Mrs. Mills was a twin, so there's several articles talking about how the Livingston twins were some of the best skaters around. Now, I love this because you personally have extraordinary insight on this because you are a competitive skater yourself. And you had shared with me that you were actually working on recreating some skating moves that were popular in the Gilded Age that no longer exist. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think we don't really think about that. We think everyone skated the way we always do today, but that's not true, right? Yeah, when I read Double Philadelphia Grapevine, I had no idea what that was. So I tried to look back at different skating manuals to see if it could give me any indication of what kind of move that was. Skating during the Gilded Age would be less jumps and spins like we see today and more, I guess, fancy footwork, you might say. So I did. I I found the, the diagram of this move and then tried to recreate it myself since I've been skating for so many years. I think one of the interesting things about skating, though, and why perhaps the moves in the Gilded Age were so much more fancy footwork, as you said, is women were skating with long coats and long dresses, right, at the time? Yes, you would have skirts, you you would have your ankles covered. And certainly the skates back then would be very challenging to skate with. There's not a lot of support. What's the big difference between a skate in the Gilded Age and a skate that we would see today? The skates were a little higher. There was no, they weren't very stiff. Like today, your skates are going to be very stiff around your ankles and the blades are going to be a lot more precise. So then I think the technology was not as advanced. So it would be much harder to skate well. I was never a good skater, which I'm embarrassed to say coming from New England, but oh well. Now, each year, the mansion really becomes a beautiful vision of Christmas in in the Gilded Age. Can you talk a little bit about how you transform the house to really show a Gilded Age Christmas today for visitors? Christmas is certainly our most popular time of year, our busiest time of year. We close in November and take about three weeks to completely transform the mansion. There's many Christmas trees, there's greenery on the sconces, on the the mantles. Thankfully, we have a great group of volunteers who help us decorate. And then we also decorate the dining room. Normally on tour, the entry into the dining room is kind of a wow moment, but at Christmas, we take that up a notch. This year, The theme is old-fashioned Christmas, a late Victorian Gilded Age Christmas that you would spend with family. In the past year, we were lucky to get this really interesting donation of a dollhouse. It's a dollhouse from 1890 that was sold at F.A.O. Schwartz. They call them now the mystery dollhouses because they don't know exactly who made them or where. But this dollhouse is huge. It's five feet tall and it's very elaborate. It's modeled after a New York City townhome. So that's going to be part of the theme and part of 
uh, the decorations this year. I can't wait to come back up and see Christmas at Statsburg. And I'm sure many of my listeners will like to do that, too. So if visitors would like to visit the Mills Mansion in Statsburg this holiday season, where will they get more information? What can we share with them? Well, the mansion will be open every year. We're open the day after Thanksgiving through December 31st. The mansion is open Thursdays through Sundays, and all of the tours at Christmas are self-guided, so you can take your time going through the house. We don't know where the Mills has had Christmas trees, but we know that if you come here today, you're going to see an 18-foot Christmas tree in the main hall. So, Maria, you have absolutely put me in the holiday spirit. I think you probably have all my listeners, too. So, thinking back to Christmases and what they would have been like in a country house in the beautiful Hudson Valley in those years of the Gilded Age, I encourage my listeners to visit the Mills Mansion either right now for the Christmas season or all year. Gosh, Maria, thank you so much for joining me today on The Gilded Gentleman. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It was such a pleasure, and I encourage all my listeners to make a visit to Statsburg and see the Mills Mansion. It really is a trip back in the Gilded Age. Thank you so much, Maria. Always my pleasure, and I hope to see many of you visiting this season. And I would like to extend sincere thanks to site manager Pam Malcolm and the staff of the Mills Mansion. I am deeply grateful for all your help and support in producing this show. And to my listeners, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Karen Gannon. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at Carl the Gilded Gentleman, and you can see many images, some of them archival, of subjects that we talk about in the show. And to stay up to date on upcoming podcasts, special tours, and events, make sure to sign up for the Gilded Gentleman monthly newsletter. And you can do that at thegildedgentleman.com. I also invite my listeners to become patrons of the show on patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support helps me to manage the costs of researching, writing, creating, and producing the show. I couldn't do it without you. I wish all my listeners the happiest of holiday seasons, and I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold? Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.